0: Father, as we come to this point in our service of worship, Lord, we ask that in spite of a foolish and frail preacher, Lord, that you would speak your truth, God, we would look to your word and, Father, you would bless the preaching, the proclamation, the teaching of your holy word, God, that you would give us together all eyes to see, ears to hear and hearts to understand the beauty and the truth of your gospel. Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would comfort us. Lord, all of these things are possible, even at the same time, through the power of your word preached in your spirit. So We ask that you might move. Your word might speak to us this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to take with me, take your Bible with me, and turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, you are welcome to either borrow, or if you don't have a copy at home, to take and keep as your own one of the Bibles that's in the back of the pew there in front of you. We will replenish it. We have plenty of others, and that can just be a Christmas gift from us So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can use that one there. You can also follow along on the screens, or you can use your tablet or phone or whatever other digital device you may have to follow along. However you are accessing the Word, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Word? As we look together now at the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 2 verse 1. We'll read through verse 20 and as has become our tradition when I reach the end of the passage I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together at Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. This is the word of the Lord. Speed of God, you may be seated. This morning, folks, we are going to walk through the Christmas story. Now, I know that we have just read together the account that Luke gives us of the Christmas story of how Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, but. What I'd like for us to look at this morning is something a little bit unique. I want for you to keep your Bible out with me, if you will. We're going to go back and forth between Matthew and Luke, and we're going to walk through the story, the true story in its entirety, and combine these two complementary accounts. Because something that I feel that we should be equipped with is a good understanding of how the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke compliment one another in their recording of jesus's birth now i know there are many people who probably every year you read both accounts you read the story as it's told in matthew matthew begins in chapter 1 verse 18 gives a brief description of jesus's birth he focuses in on a lot about joseph and joseph planning to divorce mary quietly and then an angel appears to him and tells him not to do that The next thing that we get in the story, as told by Matthew, is a visit from these three kings, as the song goes, from these magi, all right? So this morning we're going to get detailed. We're going to look at how those magi show up, when they show up, and how these two stories, which each have incomplete narratives of the story of Jesus, complement one another and do not contradict. One another. There are plenty of people in this world that will tell you that one of the reasons that they believe Christianity is false is because when you look at the accounts in the Gospels, they don't line up. They don't match. If you have four stories of Jesus's life, if you have four biographies, these four biographies all zero in on the last three years of Jesus's life. What kind of biography spends all of the time on three years of a person's life? Okay, well, We've got the birth narratives. What what do you say about that, good sir? Well, I would say that there's only two of those Gospels that contain the birth narrative. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John do not have a narrative story of how Jesus came to earth, of how God became with us. He came and dwelt among us. Well, okay, if you look at those two stories, those two stories don't even match, preacher. Well, you, you may think that if you read through them And Skim quickly, but I I promise you if you look carefully these stories complement one another and so I I have no crazy antics this morning Okay, i'm not going to fall on the stage I'm, not going to run down and beat jake over the head with a new testament I'm, not going to flip a table or break out a vacuum. Okay, but I need you to bear with me because This is of the utmost importance. We have a gospel that is true We have a gospel that is real that these are dependable facts that we're given. But if you read through it, you might think, well, how on earth did they go from Bethlehem to Egypt and then back up to Nazareth when Luke says that they turn and they leave? So we need to go through these things. We need to understand that people try to poke holes in the story of Jesus' birth, but those are not valid. And I want you to be equipped with responses. So let's start off with some of the, the earliest differences that that people point to. And that's the fact that when you take a census now, all right, as we just read in Luke chapter two, when we take a census now, we would, we would just fill out a form and turn it in. We'd be where we are. We don't have to go to another town. Nobody takes a census by asking their families to gather together in their hometowns. That's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody would do that. I'd have to go back to Pleasant Grove. There's different families that would have to go to Brantley or to Pensacola or, or all over the state and into other states, even from our congregation. Nobody conducts a census in this way. And so from the very first verses that we read in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration. So Joseph has to go to Gal- from Galilee down to Bethlehem. Why does he have to go down to Bethlehem? That's not a common practice. Honestly, that is a good and, and valid point, except for the fact that it's a very normal ancient tradition in Roman society. There's actually a man who writes about this, who was the governor of the territory of Egypt, and he says that this explicitly, says families should return home for the census so that they get an accurate count of everybody following your lineage. It was harder to keep records back then, so you went back to your family so they could get you and your brother and your sister and all of your kids and all of their kids and all of their kids' kids and all your nieces and nephews because all of them have to be taxed. So it was a very common Roman practice. Gaius Maximus, what a great Roman name, right? Gaius Maximus, you just feel the manliness oozing from that name. He is the prefect of Egypt that writes about this, a separate extra biblical account of a census taking place in this same way that archaeologists and people who are not Christians found these records and read these records and said, well, we can't say that it was an uncommon practice to go back to your family's hometown because there's other Roman records of them conducting censuses in this way. The next thing that people will say is that there's a time gap, all right? They say, while Quirinius is the governor of Syria, and you and I might read past that just like that and think nothing of it. Okay, Quirinius, he's the governor of Syria, no big deal. But in Matthew's account, we're made aware that Herod the Great, as he was very poorly referred to, Herod the Great was ruling over the area of Jerusalem. He was known affectionately or actually kind of derogatorily by the Romans as the king of the Jews. So when you look into their records, you find that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And Quirinius started governing in 6 A.D. That's a 10-year gap. So if Luke says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria and Matthew says that Herod was the king of the Jews at that time, how can those two things match up? Matthew gives us one account. Luke gives us a completely separate account. These governors did not live during the same time frame. So how is that possible? Well, a prominent archaeologist named Jerry Vardaman, Jerry Vardaman found numerous coins with an inscription of the name of the governor, Quirinius, on the coin. Those coins were dated to 11 B.C. He was the governor of that area from 11 B.C. to long after the death of Herod. So you got to be thinking, so there's two Quiriniuses? I mean, like how many people could be named Quirinius? Like I've said it so many times, I'm blown away that I haven't messed it up yet this morning. Quirinius, that's not a common name to you or I. It's not a name that endured that we name our kids now. But remember, in Roman society, when you became a Roman citizen, or if you were involved in Roman politics, you would give up your birth name and take on a Roman name. So the Roman name that many people would take on would be based on prominent politicians. So Quirinius really was a very common name for people to take on, and there really were two men named Quirinius in government at the same time. So just for for a a measurement's sake, all right, we have several Chrises and Christophers in our church right now. We have numerous people of the same name in a congregation of 300. So when you're talking about a territory of thousands of people, it's really not that odd for there to be two men named Quirinius who were both governing at the same time. And so thus far, everything between Matthew's account and Luke's account, is airtight. There are no gaps. There are no holes. And the more that we prove them to be right, the more dependable we can find the rest of their account. So let's continue as we go through this. We're told on the eighth day after his birth, Jesus goes to uh, the temple and, and there's a ceremony that is performed. He is circumcised. And the next thing that we realize after that, after all of these ceremonies at the temple, In Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 through 3, we're told that wise men from the east, magi, after seeing a star, which could have been an angel possibly, travel to come and see what this star is about. So the story that we get about the magi is separate from what Luke is talking about on the day that Jesus is born. This star probably appears when Jesus is born and, and is there for that next week and the Magi observe it, and then it kind of is there and gone sporadically. So there's, there's two different explanations. Astronomically, there are supernovas in the sky that explode and make big bursts of light. So there could have been a supernova that went off, way off, millions of miles, billions and trillions of light years away, and that explosion caused for that star to be there and then disappear. And then as that supernova is going off and that star is deteriorating, more flashes of that big light that would be abnormal appeared in the sky. So they they follow that as it appears intermittently for the next couple of years. We know that they travel for about two years because when they get to Herod, Herod says, well, I want to worship Jesus. You remember this from the account in Matthew. He says, I want to worship Jesus, this new king of the Jews. I want to worship him. He's lying. But he says, I want you to Come back and tell me when you find him. And so then they go and find Jesus in Bethlehem at a house, and then they go back home another way. And Herod is furious, and so he says, I want you to go and kill every baby that is a baby boy born in Bethlehem in the last two years. So the time that the Magi told him that the star appeared, the time that they said that the prophecies from Scripture predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem around this time, he ascertains that there must have been about a two-year gap. So all the baby boys, two years and below, have to be killed. So as nice as it is that we have beautiful nativities, all right, I just love a good nativity. It's fantastic. The wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph all being in a wooden stable all together, Probably not accurate. It's pretty, all right. It looks good. I mean, your, your your nativity looks a bit lopsided if you don't have the wise men on one side and you got the shepherds and you know the the sheep and the animals on the other side. It's, it's got to be balanced out. So I can see why we've decorated that way for so many years, but that's not necessarily accurate. Um, I don't know what that is. So anyway, these two accounts still mesh. You understand? Luke is giving us certain details. Matthew is giving us certain details that do not contradict one another. Every baby two years and below has to be killed in Bethlehem. And so a lot of people argue there's no other record that anybody has ever found of that decree from Herod. And you and I sit here today and we think, man, that's a bit suspicious, right? I mean, if he decreed that every baby in Bethlehem, two years and below, should be killed, certainly we'd see that in some other historical record somewhere outside the Bible, right? Honestly, it doesn't exist that we found yet. But let's justify this just a little bit. Nazareth and Bethlehem are about the same size. And so what we run into is a size of about 60 acres. That's the size of of Nazareth that's about the size of Bethlehem the population of these two towns is around 500 max so I don't know about you guys but growing up every time I heard that Herod ordered the death of every baby boy two years and below I was thinking thousands of babies and that may be because Matthew's drawing a very specific parallel to what happens when Moses is born you remember Pharaoh tries to thin out all of the Israelites and says that every baby boy that's born in a certain age reign should be tossed in the Nile. And so they're killed in that way. And it's a terrible and atrocious event. Matthew is drawing our attention back to that because Jesus is the greater Moses. But he's not making up an event that didn't happen. It just happened on a much smaller scale. In a town of about 500, there's, there's probably not thousands of baby boys two years and below. We're probably not even talking about hundreds of baby boys. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. If Herod ordered that one baby be killed, it's still terrible and atrocious. But I think that in my mind, I always held that this was an awful act that surely somebody would have written down. But they called Herod the Great kind of derogatorily as well. He was awful. He should have been Herod the Terrible. He killed his own family members so that nobody could take power away from him. Those are the things that they wrote down. He was responsible for the slaughter of numerous innocent people and put his own family members to death on purpose. That's what goes down in the record book about Herod the Great. So the fact that he killed You know, 50 to 75 babies two years and below that were all boys in Bethlehem. That's a generous estimation. It just never made it off the blip of anybody else's radar. Nobody else ever put out a newspaper that said that because they didn't have newspapers. Nobody posted on social media because they didn't have social media. But what Matthew did have was direct relationships. As a disciple of Jesus, he knew the people that knew Jesus. He knew Jesus' family. Matthew could probably go and talk to some of the people whose babies were killed as he put his gospel together. As he said, listen, I started walking with Jesus in the last three years of his life, but I need to know about his birth. And so he goes to Bethlehem to find some of these families. And he can talk to the very families that experienced this loss and this atrocity personally. So Matthew has a different perspective to be able to write about jesus's birth and what happened surrounding jesus's birth and the holy spirit moves upon matthew to say matthew i want you to see that that's a parallel to what happened at moses's birth all of these things took place just because it's not mentioned in another record somewhere else doesn't mean that matthew's record is invalid and so many people approach scripture with that mentality if Scripture says it. Something else has to validate it, archaeologically, or you've got to find some other historical record to believe that what this book says is true. And that's, that's just not the case. We've got so many other accurate reports from the Gospels that there's no reason for us to start off in a place of this book is guilty until proven innocent, as opposed to innocent until proven guilty. And so, yes, there were babies that were killed. And no, there is no other historical record of it. But Matthew was able to speak probably to some of these families and record that. One of the biggest problems that we run into that people claim as a contradiction is when you get down to verse 39 of, of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. All of these events are taking place with the Magi. But in Luke's account... When you hit verse 39, he says when Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. When everything that was required took place, they returned to their hometown of Nazareth. So eight days afterwards, there was a circumcision. Forty days afterwards, there is a presentation at the temple. We meet Simeon and Anna who who prophesy about Jesus as the Messiah. And if you read that verse without Matthew's account in mind, you may be led to think that on day 41, they just headed back to Nazareth. That was it. We're done with everything that's required of us. We're heading back to Nazareth. But folks, Joseph's family lived in Bethlehem, he went to be with family. They they didn't have to go and look for a hotel or an inn. Another translation of that word inn is guest room. So they were more than likely staying with family. It was just all their family was there, so there was no room for the baby. So they had to take the baby and put the baby in a manger. This is another misconception that we have, but they're there with their family. So Joseph says, listen, if we're going to be here and we're going to have a newborn baby, we might as well set up camp here because they have an infant In the ancient Near East, we're talking about the zero time frame, like 2019 years ago. And I don't know about you guys, but traveling with an infant is not the greatest and smoothest thing now in 2019, okay? If you're just curious about that, you can ask my daughter Lily on the way back from Birmingham last night. She cried her lungs out for about an hour and 15 minutes. It was just the most wonderful ride to just hear, Ah! Ah! And she's in a nice, comfy car seat. She's got a little video thing going. we got songs playing. Since Jesus came into my heart, please stop crying. We love you. Come on, Lily, give me anything. It's miserable to travel with children sometimes. It just is. That's just a fact. And we have nice, comfy cars. And you want to try and travel with an infant when there's a dirt road filled with robbers and bandits and you got all this other stuff, you're relocating your life back to Nazareth. So they just decided to set up camp. In Bethlehem for a while. Listen, in the Gospel of Mark, the word immediately is used 40 different times. There's numerous places in the Gospel of Luke where he's quoting what Mark wrote. So all over the Gospel of Luke, we have this word immediately. When Luke wants to convey to us that something happened, lickety-split, in a hurry, he's going to put the Greek word euthus, which means immediately. That word's not in here. It's a faulty assumption on our part to think that they must have left on day 41 because it says that they went back after everything was done. But I want you to look at verses 39, 40, and 41. Look at those three verses with me, okay? Verses 39, 40, and 41. In verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And then verse 42 says, and when he was 12 years old. So in the span of verse 39, verse 40 and verse 41, Jesus just grew up 12 years. Luke just covered 12 years of Jesus's life in verses 39, 40 and 41. Because once you hit verse 42, he was 12 years old. Folks, it. There's absolutely no evidence that they went back immediately. The opposite is actually true because it's a summary, broad statement that covers 12 years of Jesus's life. He continued to grow in wisdom and in stature. Luke is not writing about a successive series of I got up, I ate breakfast, I went to work, I came home from work. He's just talking about they did what was necessary and then they went back to Nazareth. So why does Luke not mention the flight down to Egypt? Because if you read Matthew's account, there's an angel that appears to Joseph while they're in Bethlehem after the Magi visit that warns them about the babies being killed. So they pack up all their things and they go down to Egypt for a short time. And then they come back to go to Bethlehem. And an angel warns them and they go back to Nazareth instead. All of that is plausible based on Luke 2.39. They were in Bethlehem for a few years. The Magi visit them at their home in Bethlehem that's near their family. And then they're warned in a dream after the Magi leave, you got to get out of here. So they go down to Egypt. And listen, this is again a theological point that Matthew is led by the Spirit to make that Luke is not. Matthew writes a gospel, an account of Jesus' life to us that would appeal to Jewish People, Jewish people, asking them to come to be believers. They want to prove that Jesus is the greater Moses. And so he goes down into Egypt and comes up out of Egypt, the same way that Moses went down into Egypt and then came back up out of Egypt. This is a mirror image of what Moses did. And as Matthew's discovering these facts about Jesus' life, the Spirit leads him to record these details and these events with the theological purpose of proving that Jesus is the greater Moses. So Luke's point, the theological direction of Luke is that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for Jew and Gentile and everybody in between. So Luke doesn't spend time talking about him going down to Egypt and coming back up out of Egypt because that doesn't that doesn't apply to the point that Luke's trying to make about Jesus as he records different details of his life. Here's your example from Luke. Luke tells us about the shepherds and Matthew does not. Why does Luke tell us about the shepherds? We just read it this morning. The shepherds were the lowest in society. It further proves what Luke is trying to teach us that Jesus is even for the lowly shepherds. Jesus is for everybody. So they're recording these these events historically, and the Spirit of God is leading them to make theological points about these accurate details in history. One telling us that Jesus even appeared, the announcement, the angels appeared to the shepherds. They didn't go to dignitaries, they didn't go to wise people, they didn't go to all the all the highfalutin politicians and kings and lords and emperors. They appeared to the shepherds, even the lowly shepherds. He was laid in a manger because. He came humble and lowly and He is for the meek and the humble and the lowly. And Matthew tells us, yes, but He's also very much Jewish. He's very much the Messiah that Moses told us would come. He's the one that Moses said would be greater than He was. Both of these stories are giving true events. And there's plenty of time after verse 39 for them to go down and to come back. And Luke doesn't mention the babies being killed because that doesn't pertain to the point that the spirit has led him to make in his gospel but folks there's nothing contradictory about these two accounts folks there are archaeologists that tried to say nazareth didn't even exist in the first century they're not only trying to discredit The actual birth narrative of Jesus, they're trying to say his hometown that he lived his whole life in wasn't even established until after he was born. So obviously everything in the gospel is not trustworthy. It's all falsehoods. It's all made up. But you know what's funny is that when you dig down into the dirt and find archaeological evidence that proves that Nazareth was about 60 acres and had a population of about 500 people and that it was very much established well before the first century – that really kind of pulls the rug out from under that claim, doesn't it? Folks, over and over again, people are like, oh, there was, there was Quirinius and there was Herod. They were alive at the wrong times. That, uh, the Bible's wrong. It lied right there. You can't trust anything else it says. Well, actually, there was another Quirinius, and uh, archaeologically, we, we dug that up and found those coins, and they, they have dates inscribed on them along with Quirinius's name. So uh, it, you just can keep that coin. You just tell me what you think about that. Over and over again, Folks, people try to poke holes in the Bible. They try to say, listen, there were other myths, there were other stories that this is based off of, Hercules being one of those. There are people out there that say this story is just a story about God becoming man the same way that Zeus was intimate with a mortal woman and Hercules was born and had super strength. That's not the claim of the gospel. That's not what this story is about. This story is not about somebody who was a superhuman. This is not a story about somebody who had super strength or did special feats. This is about God, the very maker of everything, the one who said, let it be. And it was, and God took on flesh, fully God and fully human. And the virgin birth is so absolutely instrumental to our understanding of the gospel because he wasn't just some regular guy he wasn't just an illegitimate child that mary had and joseph took on as his own son this is god himself in flesh and as crazy as that may sound god provided the y chromosome Mary provided the X and God provided the Y and it's fully God and it's fully man. It's not some myth of Hercules. This is a God who took on flesh and experienced everything that we experienced. He didn't have an earthly father. The heavenly father was his only father and he was perfectly God. And he fulfilled every single prophecy that was foretold about him. He fulfilled every letter of the law and he was only able to do that because he was fully God and fully man. And so it may seem crazy. It may seem absolutely unreasonable that a young woman who'd never known a man intimately gave birth to a son. But she did. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And we have two different accounts that complement one another. You can trust in this word. It's, it's not a ridiculous Faith, I know that it sounds absolutely absurd to somebody who's never heard it before, but it's true. We have records. And listen, folks, if you want to look up this stuff, a, a, a tiny little starter book for you is, is Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called The Case for Christmas. It's a tiny, thin little book, less than 100 pages. It gives you so many different little tips and and so many different little insights into how the Christmas story is true and valid, and all the research that they're doing proves it further. Lee Strobel is one of the ones who set out to disprove the Bible. He set out to say these Gospels are made up. They are not reliable, and we cannot trust the story that's been told to us. And now he's one of the most prominent Christian authors around because he went looking to disprove Jesus and found Jesus. Folks, that's, that's what happens when people try to disprove or say that the Bible is false or not reliable. We have testimonies that are true. And when you know that they're true, it should inspire us to be bold in sharing them. I know it's hard to walk up to somebody and say, hey, Merry Christmas, man. I- I'm so excited that Jesus came and was born of a virgin. Wait, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, I-, I was halfway listening to you and then you said something about a virgin giving birth. And you're like, yeah, actually, you can't be serious. Uh Uh-huh. I believe that. I believe that Moses held up his hands and the water congealed like jello and it was dry ground for them to walk on. I believe that Jesus put mud on people's eyes and they got sight back. I believe that Jesus said, be healed. And from miles away, the centurion's daughter was healed. I believe that all that's true. And he was able to do that because God conceived him in the womb of a virgin. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and He took on flesh and dwelled among us. It's not unreasonable. There's testimony that proves it. We have a reasonable faith, but it still takes faith. And so this morning, I just wonder how many of you have heard this story over and over and over again, and you're not really sure that you actually have faith that it's true. I have presented a lot of facts to you this morning. I've I've shown from a lot of different archaeologists and things of that nature and you you may can know those facts but do you have faith in your heart that this is the word of God it is true and have you allowed that to change your life folks it's a, it's a simple and straightforward question this morning do you believe that Jesus is God's son that he was born of a virgin that cross for you and for me. If you already believe that, I just wonder this morning, do you shy away from telling it because you think it's outlandish? Do you shy away from talking to people about it because you think, "I, I, I can't, I can't back that claim up. Folks, the evidence is there. We live in a time where all the resources are at our fingertips. It's a Google search away from finding reputable sources who've done the digging, who've held the evidence in their hands. This gospel is true. I encourage you to believe it. Believe it so much that you share it this Christmas season. Would you bow with me? God, great is your name and greatly to be praised. Your steadfast love, Lord, it endures forever. And, Father, I know personally there have been times where I've been hesitant to share the story of Christmas, the true gospel, because I'm afraid I don't know all the answers. Lord, help us to have faith that it's true. Help us to to be diligent to look up answers when we can. But regardless of if we have all the answers, Lord, give us the boldness to share the good news and trust that the research is there that backs up what we know from the Bible. Lord, help us to be your ambassadors. Father, if there's anybody here this morning who has been doubting the story of Christmas, Lord, maybe there's something that has been said that, has moved on their heart, I pray that Your Spirit would work in them, that they would come to faith to believe that You really were born of a virgin. You really did die. You really were raised from the dead. God, I also pray that You be with those who are hurting this Christmas season. Lord, there's so many, Father, who have a hard time at Christmas. And I pray that the fact that You were born, the fact that You did not have to come to us, but You did. That You demonstrated Your love in that way. Lord, that that would be a comfort to all of us. That we would remember that even though the holidays can be tough, that Your love is unwavering. Your love was demonstrated in the birth of a baby laid in a manger. In the death of a Savior on the cross. And in His resurrection three days later. Lord, we pray that You would use this sermon, to move our hearts and inspire us. God, we ask that as we go into a time of response that your Spirit would work on us, that we would respond in in obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name.